When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, Buff Nation, voice of the boss, Mark Johnson. Time for another Buffs Inside Zone. And I thought we'd uh, have some fun since this past weekend. We were supposed to be watching the Buffs spring game on Saturday, April 25th. Coach Gary Barnett and I would have been broadcasting that. That obviously didn't happen. So it's, uh, well, honestly, I miss Gary so much I had to get him on the podcast. So former coach Gary Barnett, my broadcast partner from down in Arizona. How are the Barnetts getting by during this uh, crazy time in which you're living there, Gary? You know, we're doing pretty well down here, Mark, and we're sort of uh, we're up away from the mass population in Phoenix, and so we've got a lot of room. Golf courses are open, so I'm, I'm a happy camper, and <laughs> Mary's painting uh, a lot. So uh, we do need our time apart, and uh, <laughs> it, it works very well for us. <laughs> so how is the golf game, then, if you got this much time in your hands? Uh, you know, really, do you want to talk about that on this podcast? <laughs> it, you know, it, it's, it's like my golf game has been my entire life. One good month, one, two bad months, one good month, one bad, two bad months. But I work at it, you know, I, I, I still think I can fix it every single day, and I wake up in the morning, you know, my old quote is, you got to be willing to go to bed a failure and then get up the next morning and get after it again. So that's sort of how I'm living my life right now. <laughs> so so when you're – I've never asked you about this. When you're on the golf course, does Gary Barnett coach Gary Barnett? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. And unfortunately. <laughs> you know, and so uh, – and, and, you know, I read all these – these sports psychology books. So I, I try to practice that, which basically tells you to just go neutral. Don't <laughs> don't let those thoughts in. And amazingly enough, when I put that to use, it works pretty good. But when I when I'm so mad at what I'm doing that I've got to fix it, then it doesn't seem to work so well. So 
You know, this is such a, a surreal time in which you're living. And, I, and I, I've thought about you many times because once a coach, always a coach. And, and I've wondered what's gone through your mind as you're watching from afar Carl Durrell, who you know very well, come into this program to take over a football program at the University of Colorado. And then he gets there, and basically two, three weeks in, he can't coach a football team and can't get his hands on a football team. What must that be like for Carl Durrell right now, do you think? You know, Mark, uh, that, that, that's a great question and, and a great subject. And um, no one's ever gone through this before, or no one that I know, and, and I doubt that very many do, especially at this level. But there's always some sort of disruptions. So uh, as I've tried to put myself in Carl's shoes, you know, the first thing that happens is, oh, my gosh, I'm overwhelmed. What do I do? But then I think the next thing that happens, and I'm, I'm sure Carl and his guys are doing this, is, you, you know, you get creative, and it just it stimulates you. Instead of just doing things the way they've always been done, which sometimes can eliminate the creative process, uh, uh, you sort of get stuck a little bit, not in a rut, but in just doing the same things all the time, that this is – you know, this is the ultimate stimulus now. And, uh, you know, I, I think it probably uh, makes everybody in some way better, uh, for sure more creative, uh, and it taps into your real leadership. Um, I mean, you find out if you're a veteran team, you have a big advantage, I think, because sure. you've already created um, team chemistry and you know who your leaders are. And now you can just tap into them, and and they get stimulated too. They get they get fired up trying to figure this thing out. If you've got a real young team, then I think you're you know you've got to work doubly hard as a coach and your staff and and all your people that work with you. So, in some ways, I think it, it would be just absolutely the greatest challenge. And and our coaches embrace that kind of stuff. So, I haven't talked to Carl since all this started, uh, other than by text. And so I'm sure that every minute uh, somebody on his staff or his staff together, they're, they're trying to figure out a way to, to get through this, and it, and it stimulates them and probably is going to make them more creative and better in some ways. I've wondered if, being that you've got a new staff you put together, and, and you know this better than anybody, you're, you kind of, you're, you're, but, but in, court, uh, with, in relation to the, the other people in your conference, you're probably behind them because you're trying to get your staff together, make sure everyone's on the same page. Does this allow in some way his staff to catch up a little bit? Because nobody else can move forward with their team either. A little bit, for sure. And, you know, what, when you have put a, together a new staff, the, uh, what happens is you really find out um, quirks and needs and strengths when you, when you get under fire, and and the only way under fire you can do it when you're coaching is games uh, and situations that come up during the week and that kind of stuff. So right. that part of it they're missing, but at the same time they have unbelievable uh, fire in this this whole uh, virus and what it's causing and the and the um, uh, restrictions that you're under. And so you're going to find out a whole lot about your guys. Uh, it, it's different than being under the fire of a game, but in some ways, it you may find out more in this scenario than you would in a game or the preparation during the week and recruiting. So, I think you look for an opportunity, uh, and that's part of this 
creative thing I think you're forced to do is you look for an opportunity to be able to evaluate, see where you're going to need help, see where you can get better as a staff, see how it's going to grow, who you can depend on, who needs help. Um, but, yeah, I, I think what you said is exactly right. I think that in some ways you can get a little bit caught up uh, and not be so far behind when it does open up and let you start coaching. You know, one of the issues with this whole deal, and I guess it's true for governmental agencies, for businesses, for everybody, is you're, you're kind of aiming at a moving target here, Gary. I mean, you don't know. You want to plan. You want to prepare if you're Carl Durrell, but you don't know when exactly you're going to get a chance to coach your football team and, and if and when they're going to have games and all these sorts of things. That, that's got to be a real difficult aspect of this. Well, I, I think it is, but you've got to be able to work in ambiguity. And, and I think the, uh, people who can work uh, – during times of ambiguity are the ones who, who really um, get a head start and function at a high level. So, uh, you know, Americans and, and people, human beings, have always been able to get themselves through this kind of thing. And, and I, uh, I, I think in some ways it's going to bring out the, the best parts of people and uh, in coaching and in players. You know, nobody's getting hurt during this period of time. That's, That's one good point. Thing. Mark, uh, you haven't had any injuries. So, um, you, you know, there's. I, I think as a coach right now in this situation, you absolutely have to look for the very best in everything and just be creative and thrive on the ambiguity and just get after it. And, um, you, you know, you, you can experiment. You can do a lot of different things creatively now that maybe you couldn't afford to do if you were on the regular – um, Groundhog Day kind of tracked. Right, right. You and I haven't uh, talked publicly since uh, you know all the mess. Mel leaving, Carl coming in. You, you've known Carl Durrell for a long time. What, what can you tell Bus fans about the guy that uh, almost surprisingly became their coach? Yeah, and it's um, you know I I text Rick probably fifteen minutes after I heard, and and Rick was very. Uh, quiet in this deal. They did a great job sure. of being under the radar, and and not a lot of people knew that this move was going to be made. And uh, and I I stayed out of it, and and Rick obviously kept me out of it for good reasons. But um, <laughs> I texted him probably 15 minutes after I saw it. And I said, "This is a great hire." Wow. And you know I felt that way because. I don't know if there's anybody out there who could have checked all the boxes that needed to be checked at a at a already difficult time. I mean, it was a difficult time before uh, we got COVID nineteen. Uh, that was a very very difficult time in a coach's life or in an athletic director's life, and uh, you know, especially I think uh, the previous regime. I think that's how I refer to it. Um, uh, left it, you know. I mean, the way it happened and that sort of stuff. It it really created some turmoil, and it it needed to be settled. And it there were a lot of boxes that I don't think anybody else probably could have checked all those boxes. Yeah. And uh, you know, Carl does that, and so you know, Carl is a very classy guy. He's a very dependable guy. He's a a very smart guy. He's a quiet by nature kind of guy. He's, um, you know, he's just he's he's just as solid as it can possibly get. 
And um, I think that's what we needed, and that's why I think it was such a good hire by Rick and Lance um, to, to come up with Carl. And, I, and I'm sure because of Lance's um, relationship with Carl that that probably has been, had been a name that was, was, was at least in their meetings talked about almost all the time. Yeah. But um, I think that Rick had plenty of time to do due diligence on a lot of people, and I think they did that. And whether, you know, all the rumors flying around as who was offered, who wasn't offered, and that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, there's only a, really a couple of guys who know. And um, I think the way and the timing uh, that it was done was about as good as any anybody could do or anybody could expect someone else to do with the way Rick and Lance handled it. Yeah. I have been so impressed, and I didn't know Carl. Uh, I knew of him, never crossed paths with him. But you, you talk about kind of a, a quiet, settling demeanor. He's got that. And, and the, the little bit I've had a chance to be around it before all this broke out, uh, there's, a, there's a quiet confidence, and you kind of get the sense, uh, as quiet as he is, Gary, he's a pretty, I'd say, competitive guy, isn't he? Oh, no question. Oh, yeah, Carl. Carl you don't play that game at the level that he played it and not be competitive. You don't coach for as many years and with as many people as he has and not be tremendously competitive. And, you know, the, the thing that I, I'm impressed with with Carl is he's pretty much the same guy as he was mm. uh, when I got to know him in, in the mid-'90s. So um, it's uh, uh, he hasn't changed, and he, he, he maintains this demeanor and – the way he does things, he's always learning as well, uh, and I'm sure he's learned a lot from his first experience at UCLA as the head coach. And as you know, Mark, uh, well, were you there when we went head to head? You weren't there when we no, went head to head. No, no, was but, not. Just missed it. But uh, we went head to head a couple times, and so uh, you know, I've always had a great deal of respect for Carl uh, and fondness for his family as well. So uh, his daughter was always around because. Very close friend with the Emerys, and and um, and so uh, we had a chance to always run into each other every once in a while. So always fond for, very fond of the family and, for, and Carl and his professionalism. You know, you just mentioned the Emerys. Um, I've always said in this business as a broadcaster, it's it's always amazing to me when I'll broadcast a guy and then eventually end up broadcasting his son. How about the fact that Taylor Embry is back as a coach now at the University of Colorado? How about that? You know, it's in those both of the, those uh, sons of John. It's in their you know DNA. Sure. So it it doesn't surprise me, and and uh, both both guys have been doing really well. And it's uh, you know I I knew the minute Carl was hired that without talking to Carl or John, I knew one of the Embry guys were going to be coaching <laughs> there. And you know that's what you do, and and uh, you, that's a business where you can sort of do that. Yeah. And if you look through. Uh, rosters of coaches in the NFL and colleges, you see a lot of that. A lot of coaches' sons go into the business, and, and I don't call it a business, but into the profession. And, and um, you know, the relationships that coaches have, because you, you get to know so many guys, uh, you can use those relationships to, to uh, at least get your son an interview, and that's all you can ask for. But uh, so I wasn't surprised that Taylor was back, and I'm excited for Taylor. I'm excited for John and his family as well. Yep, uh, no doubt about that. You know, here we're sitting here talking about college football, and we don't even know if we're going to have a college football season. Isn't it amazing? 
I know, and it's uh, I can't tell you every day, and I'm around a lot of sports fans down here, um, and a lot of college sports fans, and I get asked every day what I think, and right. you know, if we don't have it, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to cry. I'm going. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. This this can't be happening. So everybody is is certainly sitting on pins and needles, hoping that it it comes about, and. I don't know, Mark, what your feelings or thoughts are on it, um, and I don't know if we want to get into that. But it's uh, everybody wants the same things. There's just so many more things involved yeah. with that decision. I think at the college level than there is the professional level, and I think that makes it doubly complicated. You know, on, on top of what you're saying, and, and to add to the complication here, there, there there is obviously the health side of this, which we're all concerned about. We want to take care of each other. There is the the financial driver's side of college athletics, which is the engine is college football. And, and Gary, I wonder, if, if the longer this goes on, and if, if by September 1 we're not playing college football games, with what would happen with the NCAA tournament and the financial impact of the NCAA, I mean, we're getting into some very thin ice here from a college athletic standpoint moving forward if there's no football this fall. Well, I don't think there's any question about that, Mark, and, and who it impacts and it's obvious, uh, I think, for most people that involved around the game, like we are around college sports, right. is it's it's going to impact the, the non-revenue sports. It's gonna, you know, it it, it it's uh, you know, I know they're talking cuts and salaries already, but but those cuts, I think, are just just the tip of the iceberg. And sure. um, if they cannot make any kind of a budget. This year, if they can't create any revenue, um, then they have no choice um, but to look at the future of non-revenue sports. Sure. And um, it's it, and hopefully it would be just for a year, or maybe two years, how, however many years you 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 need to even have the possibility to bring it back from a financial standpoint. But like anything else, once you do without something for a couple of, for a while, you realize you maybe you don't have to have it, yeah. and and that could happen as well. And I don't want to be a doomsdayer here, but but it's very it's a very real practical situation that you have to deal with if you're in a university, and especially as an athletic director and you're a chancellor and you're responsible for all those budgets and everything else. You've got to you've got to know that that's out there somewhere. Yeah, there's no doubt about it, and and I know that uh, people above our pay grade are, are looking at that stuff and analyzing that stuff, and it's uh, kind of the uh, you know wild frontier, if you will, right now. Hey, let's let's shift gears here a little bit. Uh, I mentioned earlier, once a coach, always a coach. I, I wonder, t- take us back to young Gary Barnett growing up in Mexico, Missouri. Uh, <laughs> some coaches are are born, some stumble into it. When did Gary Barnett realize that he was probably going to end up being a football coach or coach of some kind? Well, probably about when I was about five years old, I got my first helmet and shoulder pads, and <laughs> and I started organizing games on the on the empty lot down on Liberty Street. And, uh, you know, I would I would call Johnny Swadick, and I would or I'd go see Johnny Swadick, or I'd go see Dickie Isaacs or Jimmy Birchfield or all these guys from my past, and I'd just try to get them to come up and we'd play, and, and so. Uh, I sort of knew then that I, that's 
somehow that's probably what I was going to do. And, you know, when I was, uh, when I moved to St. Louis and, um, uh, became a quarterback on my, on my high school team, then I was the one that was organizing all the workouts during the summer. You know, and it was, I was getting hold of everybody and made sure we had seven on seven every day back. That's back in the sixties. And really, we became, we we ended up with an undefeated football team, and it was because of all the things we did together that none of the other schools were doing. But we did it in, in 1963 and 1962 um, on three days a week. There was almost every player on our team up there for a workout in Chesterfield, Missouri. So um, I sort of knew by then, and, and then... As I went to college, um, I just absorbed it all, and you know, I I was on a scout team for for two or three years, and I um, I got access to all the plays. I got to see all the plays that everybody else was running around the country, and uh, I I kept most of those things hmm. for a long time, and so I I just you know I love certain offenses and certain teams and certain routes and that sort of stuff. And I was more involved with the routes than anything else as a receiver. But, uh, and then when the season was, when our season was over, I would coach the intramural uh, football team okay. for my fraternity. So, you know, it, had, it just sort of started on an empty lot in Mexico, Missouri, I think, with a little red helmet from a, our sporting goods store was also a bowling alley. So my <laughs> uncle bought me a little red hut helmet and that's how it all started <laughs> so so on that field of mexico missouri you were bossing people around just like you do saturdays in the broadcast yep, booth yep yep i was trying to find an <laughs> offensive guy and a defensive guy and so and i just loved the game i you know i would play every afternoon my brother and i would be out in the backyards and no matter what the temperature we'd be playing one-on-one tackle and just you know i loved it i just absolutely loved the game everything about it so you're you're coaching high school down the springs how, how did the Moved to, or actually, were you at Fort Lewis at this time? What, what, right before you got the job at CU with Bill McCartney, where were you at? I was at uh, Fort Lewis at that time. Okay, I started at Air Academy High School. We yeah. moved in 1971, and uh, I got the head job in '73, and um, and then I was there for 11 years, and moved to Fort Lewis in uh, 1982. Okay, and Bill came to Colorado in 1982, and we, I was the outgoing president of the. Uh, Colorado uh, High School Coaches Association, and we had our big clinic in August, and just before school started, Bill had just come in, and I had him speak at the uh, Colorado High School Coaches luncheon. Okay. He and I sat next to each other, and and that's when we discovered that we had really similar backgrounds, and, you know, he was from Missouri. He played at Missouri five years before I was there. So we knew all the same people. And so we sort of hit it off from there. And then a, a year and a half later, um, there was an opening on his staff. And Jerry DiNardo really, uh, you know, got in Bill's ear about me. And so I ended up going to going to Colorado. And I remember Bill called me and he, he says, okay, he says, uh, how much money are you making? And I said, uh, I was making 26. Right. And I said, I'm making 27. <laughs> he says, okay, I'll give you 28. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I got in an 
on a plane from Durango, and uh, I didn't, we didn't have any money. On the way to the airport, a buddy of mine stopped at an ATM and got me fifty dollars, and uh, I flew to flew to Denver, and a friend picked me up, and. On the way from the airport to see you, I had to stop and throw up. I was so excited. <laughs> so, and there, there it was, you know, and I just walked in and, you know, just started adjusting right away. That's outstanding. And, uh, you know, here we're sitting here previously talking about, you know, financial issues. You have told me stories about getting to see you and working with Bill McCarty at that time and how tight the budget was back then for all of you coaches trying to recruit kids. Bill, uh, Mark, it was unbelievable. My first spring, so we didn't have enough money. First of all, when we went out to recruit, we couldn't come home on weekends because <laughs> we didn't couldn't afford the plane flight right. back. So we had to stay out for two weeks at a time. We had to stay in a hotel under $35. We could not call. We had no long distance, no credit cards. We had to use our own credit card. And it would take us months to get reimbursed for the, our own credit cards. We had no right. university credit cards, nothing. <laughs> we couldn't call. We did, we couldn't make long distance calls to the office, even collect. And um, we had uh, we, we didn't have we couldn't rent cars. So what happened is Fred Casati uh, put together a list of what they call zone dealers, and they're guys who who keep cars in an area, and then uh, rental car people will purchase them from them, or okay. other dealers will purchase it from them. So we used zone cars. So we would find find out the address, and <laughs> I remember I was with Jim Caldwell and Les Miles and Jerry DiNardo, and we'd gone out not just recruiting but visiting schools and in the east so we we got a somebody to drive us to the slot and the keys of the car run on top of the left front tire and so we, we got the keys we got in the car we drove it we had to drive it back there when we were done and put the keys back on the front left tire so we did stuff like that it was unbelievable uh great stuff uh, amazing where college athletics is now compared to what it was then. Hey, you know, you think about your your run as a head coach, and you, I mean, you won two Big Ten titles at Northwestern. You won obviously the 2001 Big 12 title at Colorado, four Big 12 North uh, championships. I wonder as you look back in your career, I, I don't know if it's fair to say a favorite team, uh, and maybe it's not one that that was a team that won all that much. But is there a team that maybe has got a special place in your heart? Do you think of oh, the course of your coaching career? Mark, when you coach, I think every single team you ever coach is special to you. Okay. I think, and I and I think people that are more objective than I will, I am would probably say that if if someone heard my name, they would think of Northwestern and the Rose Bowl and probably beating Notre Dame. Right. Um, but uh, the 2004 team, uh, after we had gone through just an Unbelievable, you know, and I can equate it to what's going on now a little bit. Right. Uh, uh, an unbelievable, just hysteria kind of deal there at CU. Um, that team hung together at, at a time when nobody thought that we could survive it as a team. That team hung together, and um, you know, our, our wives, our players, our parents all hung. 
together, and we still found a way to win that division again and win a bowl game. And so I think that team went through more adversity than that I, that I coached. And I was, I was so proud of how all of our uh, people within our team and our program hung together and just withstood all the uh, all the stuff that we had to go through. And I don't want to get into all that, but yeah. it, those those guys um, stayed and they persevered, and we creatively uh, found ways um, to survive that, and we did. So it was, I think that. That one, to me, is always special. You know, and that makes a lot of sense. And, and that was the year that, that I got to see you. It was 2004. And so I walk in, not knowing anything about anything other than what, I, what I'd heard, and had a chance to be around you guys and watch that team and, and be around you. And I, I'm not sure at the time I fully understood what was going on, but in, in hindsight, looking back, there was a galvanization that formed around that group where you could see that all you all of the guys in the roster, all you guys in the staff were really rowing in the same direction and it was something kind of special happening amongst that group. Yeah, there's no question about that and and uh you know, it was it, it was I remember sitting in a meeting with our staff and and I and I see maybe Carl envision him doing the same thing when all this happened, but sitting there and saying, "You know what? Uh we say we're leaders. This is our greatest opportunity to, in our lifetime that we knew so far to lead and and to show everybody around us the way it should be done, the way it needs to be done, and how you handle yourself under these circumstances. And to a man, everybody responded. Yeah. And to a woman, everybody in our department. Uh, you know, it, it was amazing. Our trainer, Steve Willard, and, and strength coach, Greg Finnegan, and then and all the people that all the secretaries and everybody else that all academic people. I mean, we created a bond that was unbreakable, literally. What is the greatest lesson? And I know you're you're a, a guy that studies. You talked about reading books. You want to have these conversations. This game of football, which you love so much, what's the greatest lesson football has taught you over the course of all these years? I think. What I said earlier about uh, um, when things get tough for me is that I think you learn that you've got to be willing to go to bed a failure and get up the next day and get after it again. I, I I think that in itself is really sort of typifies maybe not just sports, but for sure for me, football. And um, it's uh, you really do. You, there's so many ups and downs, and man, you 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 have no choice but to get up the next day and go try to do it again. Right. And the, it takes energy, enthusiasm, and love of the game to do it. And not everybody can do it. And so, or not every anybody can do it, but not everybody chooses to do it. Uh, I I think to some extent that's that may be what I think is as important as anything about the game. You know, when doing what you do as a coach, doing what I've done as a broadcaster, we've had a chance to, to be in different programs and different spots. You went to Missouri, so you you were there, and obviously that's got a special place in your heart. And every place I've been has got a special place in my heart. But, but you and I have spent the majority of our careers doing what we do at the University of Colorado one form or another. I'm wondering, 
What do you think, lastly here, Gary, is special about Boulder and CU that makes it the place that it is? Uh, you know, gosh, Mark, I, I think a lot of things. For me, moving to the West was just a life-changing situation. I mean, just the attitude in the West, I think, is is really cool. Yeah. Uh, and Boulder typifies that, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, you, you can't get up every morning and look outside and not feel good because Amen. you're in such a special place. And for me, the people that, that I've been fortunate enough to be around there, um, it has, it's, uh, you know, it's, it just draws, draws you to it. And, and I think the, one of the best thing I, indications of what it does is when I think of all the guys that <clears throat> we brought to Colorado from all over the country, um, especially during max year years from all over yeah. the state, all those guys are still around there. When you, when you come to Colorado, for any period of time, it's hard to ever leave and go anyplace else and uh, and be as happy <clears throat> and not have a yearn to go back. I mean, everybody that, that leaves there after being there wants to go back. And uh, it's ask Chris Wilson. He's a perfect example who's <laughs> come back again. And, and uh, so I, people, the West, Boulder itself, University of Colorado, you know, shoulder to shoulder. I mean, all those things just become, you know, uh, such a joy to live. Yep. When it gets uh, kind of its claws, it it's it's. You're right. It's kind of got you forever. I, I fully understand here that now, having been here for 16 years. Well, partner, I wish uh, I wish we were sitting in a broadcast booth talking about uh, college football, but it's been good to catch up and uh, let's keep our fingers crossed that uh, come September, you and I will be a ch- have a chance to sit there at Folsom Field and call some college football. How's that sound? That sounds so good. I, I just want to hear you call a touchdown. I just want, that's all I want. I want to hear you call a touchdown. Our, one of our touchdowns. I want to hear that, man. I miss it. From your mouth to God's ears, Gary. Great to catch up with my friend, my broadcast partner, and uh, one of the greatest college football coaches in college football history. The great Gary Barnett at Colorado as a head coach from 99 to 2005. Of course, he had that magical run at Northwestern uh, with the Wildcats and assistant coach under Bill McCartney from 1984 to 1991. Great to catch up with Gary. And again, can't wait till he and I are calling bus football this fall. Keep your fingers crossed. I'm voice of the bus, Mark Johnson. That'll wrap up this week's edition of the Buffs Inside Zone. We'll talk to you next time.